All right. Should I launch into it? Uh, we're doing um, the verdict, right? I hope so. <laughs> That's what I prepared for. All right. I'm ready. All right. Uh, before we begin, let me uh, just go grab a nice warm beer out of the file cabinet. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Real DMC Podcast. Uh, this week, it is the 1982 homework assignment, where we take a film from 1982 that we either haven't seen in a long time, or we never saw, rewatch it, and then give you some thoughts. Uh, this week, we are we are watching Sidney Lumet's 1982 film, The Verdict. His name is Frank Galvin. Four cases in the last three years, he's lost them all. He drinks. This man's scared to death to go to court. So what DMC actually stands for is Dave, Marcus, and Colin. I'm here with my friends Marcus and Colin, and we're here to talk about 1982's The Verdict. How you doing? Good, how are you? Colin, what's up, dude? Not much. I just got my donut and shot a Bushmill, so I'm ready to go. I took the uh, beer, raw egg and the beer was my breakfast. Okay, so maybe we can just rewind a little bit on our choice. So um, we had a couple of movies to choose from. We were thinking about this, Diner. I think we ended up settling on the verdict. Did you guys have an opinion as to why this one was of more interest to you than the other movies? Yeah, this one had some uh, critical acclaim. The verdict was nominated for five Oscars. I've heard about Paul Newman's performance in it and done really well. So this one seemed a little more interesting than the others. How about you, Colin? I think I'd actually seen this movie once, very long time ago, I think a couple of years after it came out. And the reason that I wanted to see it was because of Paul Newman's performance. And it's also a legal drama, which, you know, I think a lot of people like. So I think I wanted to choose that over Diner because I, I think I, I remember Diner a little bit more, but I, I want to rewatch Diner. But this one, it just seemed like a, a really good choice. Um, okay, well, how about just in terms of, you know, the film's reputation or what you knew about this film before we watched it? I knew that Paul Newman had been nominated for Best Actor. And I think one of the other reasons I, I skewed towards this one over Diner was because uh, uh, I know that Bill Simmons has it as his number one Boston film. He has it over the town? That's surprising. Over the town, yeah. yeah. I was just actually listening to the town uh, rewatchables this morning, and Bill had mentioned that. It's, um, you know, it's always sort of been out there in my consciousness, uh, you know, as like a great drama, but you just don't hear people talking about that much anymore. Um, how about you, Marcus? Did you have a, uh, you know, did you know of this film from a reputation standpoint? No, not really. I, um, until we started doing the research for 1982, I was barely aware of the movie, if that. Looking it up, I, I recognize a lot of the names uh, written by David Mamet, who's done a bunch of uh, great stuff, including one of my favorites, Untouchables. Um, and Sidney Lament as a director. Uh, and of course, everyone knows Paul Newman. And who does want to spend time with Paul Newman? Yeah, I, I had definitely seen this movie before. Um, I realized that uh, probably in the late 80s, I went on a little bit of a Paul Newman kick uh, from you know movies. So I ended up tracking down a bunch of his uh, earlier work. So The Verdict, HUD, um, you know, some of the some of his earlier stuff. So huge Paul Newman fan. Obviously, The Sting and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Those two movies are two of my favorite all-time movies, so um, it's great to see Paul Newman. The one thing that I remember about this movie more than anything else is the pinball machine, actually. That's the one thing that stuck out of my head. So when I knew we were going to rewatch this, that's immediately what uh, jumped back into my mind. Um, before we get to talk about the kind of the progression of the film, maybe we can just talk a little bit more about the film's pedigree. So maybe we can start with Sidney Lumet. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty interesting because I, I think that you could say that he's one of the most accomplished directors of the 20th century. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you're talking about films like uh, 12 Angry Men, Network, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, these are all like classic films. In fact, 12 Angry Men and Murder on the Orient, on the Orient Express are two of my favorites. I've seen Network once. Have you guys seen that? Um, the ones that jump out for me are more Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. So kind of, you know, the sort of the New York. I mean, Dog Day Afternoon is obviously a very well-known, famous movie. Uh, but for me, the interesting thing is more the fact that he made 12 Angry Men in 1957. And as amazing as that movie is, and I, and I will say the fact that I, I find it interesting that Jack Warden is also in that film. And I bet if we were to watch that now, Jack Warden probably looks exactly the same as he does right now. I think we need, need to add Jack Warden to the list of people that don't age. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, by the way, so is uh, the bishop. I forget his name, the actor's name, but he was also in 12 Angry Men. Yeah, Network, you should definitely watch. I watched it a couple years ago, and it's actually, it holds up amazingly well, and it's really kind of on point with the way the uh, news 
media is portrayed today even like it's 40 years ago 50 years ago movie and it still holds up really well sort of interesting when you look at the all the movies that he's made that i, I don't i don't commonly you know reading through uh, you know reading about directors or hearing people discuss directors you know you hear coppola and spielberg and but i don't know Sidney lumet does not come up as a name that is or scorsese you know doesn't come up as a name that is commonly discussed i just i think that's sort of interesting maybe i'm just looking in the wrong places but i can't I don't think I've ever had a conversation with somebody like, oh, I'm a huge Sidney Lumet fan as a director. I, I think it's because the movies nowadays, there aren't that many. They're not very like drama driven. Right. So uh, he was, you know, he was doing these big dramas during a time when from 50s through the 80s, probably. Right. And those, those films just don't get made anymore. I mean, it, you know, if you had asked that question like 20 years ago, I think Sidney Lumet would definitely be yeah. high on those, the list. And so the, the other thing that I would say about Sidney Lumet is he actually made, uh, he made the movie, which I didn't even realize he was the director of this until I went back and looked at his uh, IMDb, but he made Failsafe. Have you guys ever seen Failsafe? Oh, yeah. That movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scared, that movie scared the crap out of me as a kid. That That's one of the, um, that, that's if you if you want to see a very tense, uh, you know, war movie about potential for nuclear war at the height of the Cold War. I'd, I would recommend Failsafe. It's it's pretty terrifying, actually. It has a very scary ending, in particular, what happens when uh, when they show New York. That always stuck with me. Um, so uh, the other person of note in terms of attached to this movie from a production standpoint, so David Mamet wrote the screenplay. Uh, that guy has done a few few things in regards to writing, like winning the Pulitzer Prize, for example. Obviously, very accomplished uh, stage uh, writer and uh, screenplays as well. Um, I think that there's a lot of a lot of people uh, when you read online about David Mamet. A lot of people talk about the uh, I think what they call it is Mamet speak, so the rapid fire dialogue and where characters are sort of stepping on each other's dialogue. I think a lot of that, to me, my familiarity with that is primarily Glengarry Glenn Ross um, and. But beyond that, I didn't think this movie kind of, I, I didn't think the verdict had what I would associate with Mammoth's dialogue style for a lot of it. I don't know, just felt a little, not. it wasn't as um, short or, I don't think the characters were kind of stepping on each other uh, as compared to some of his other films. Uh, I agree. I d it didn't really sound very mammoth to me, um, but it was like only his second screenplay, I think. Uh, Jack Warden, as we mentioned, also shows up in here. Um, I think Jack Warden was in every movie in the '70s, something like that. Maybe yeah, totally. It's like you know, he, he shows up in everything. I I, I personally he, love him in uh, Heaven Can Wait. Oh, he's yeah, he's great in Heaven Can Wait, and uh, he's pretty, he's pretty funny because he just has that that voice, Jack Warden. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty cool. That's good to see him. And then uh, a couple other uh, characters. So Charlotte Rampling shows up as uh, Laura Fisher, who ends up being a bit of a villain in this movie. What are your thoughts on Charlotte Rampling? You know, it's interesting. I actually, uh, when I looked at Charlotte Rampling, I get her a little bit confused visually with Meg Foster. Do you know who that is? They both have very similar eyes. No, but speaking of Meg Foster, I'd have to look her up. Her name does not sound familiar, but um, I just wanted to say that uh, with regard to Charlotte Rampling, I've always thought that she has like these dead eyes like there's nothing going on be behind them. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. It's just her look. It's almost like this blank, dead stare. Well, she she has very distinctive eyes to me. That's the uh, certainly the feature that kind of jumps out at me when you're looking at her on the screen. I think the and that's why the I was thinking about Meg Foster when I saw her because Meg that's also an actress that has eyes that are very distinctive. I guess the last person to mention would be James Mason. So he shows up as the uh, attorney for the the church. So he's the playing the defense attorney, and you know, James Mason has just a very distinctive uh, style of speech. So you, you immediately recognize James Mason when he comes on the screen. Just has to start talking. Did you uh, did you recognize Joe Seneca, who was the actor who played the uh, doctor for hire, Doctor Thompson? Yeah. No, I, I mean he looks familiar, but I don't know his name. He was uh, Danny Glover's dad from uh, Silverado. Oh, when he yeah. came on, I'm like, oh, it like, took me a few minutes to get it. But like, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny because I was, I totally recognized that guy and I could not yeah. figure out where I recognized him from. It Thank took you. me a couple minutes to get it. I'm like, oh, okay. That's good. All right. Um, so here's, here's a question I have for you. Yeah. So when I saw James Mason in this role, and I mean, obviously he, he was amazing because he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But 
I sort of thought like he would that he was miscast because he's British and he's got, you know, an English accent and he just seems sort of out of place. You know, he's playing Ed Kincannon, right. uh, a decidedly Irish name in Boston, and he is most decidedly English. Um, so originally, Burt Lancaster was going to play this role and he had to drop out. And so uh, Sidney Lumet was sort of, it was sort of fortuitous because he really wanted James Mason to be in this movie. So my question for you is, do you think um, Burt Lancaster would have been better? It's interesting because uh, James Mason to me, uh, he he has sort of a, a strange uh, character as a, the attorney in this. You know, he's, um, because they're, they're trying to simultaneously make him, in my mind, seem... Uh, was what I'm looking for, not empathetic or, you know, somewhat professional, but then there's the scene where he's grilling the doctor in the office and he's like, they, you know, they have him yell, you know, cut the bullshit at the doctor. So they're trying to suddenly make him seem more aggressive than he actually is. So that, that to me was the tension of uh, his character, or I think the, the, maybe the actor versus the character, I would agree that I'm not sure it fit that well. And I think if you had somebody that was more, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, kind of, you know, guttural or more rough, I think it probably would have played a little bit better. Yeah, he's like, to me, he always comes across as very aristocratic. And I'm not sure that that was what was needed for this role. But he was, I mean, he was, he was great, but I still, I still sort of feel like it's incongruous. I said, I thought they were trying to show him as the head of this law firm that was powerful. So I thought it did, I thought he, it didn't seem out of place for me. The one thing that I would say is I think they they mirrored his office setup, or they they uh, they created the scene of his office to match his character. So he's you know, he's very prim and proper when he's walking around the table, and then they go over and he opens up the cabinet. And I, I like that to show the super advanced high tech uh, legal office. They have a reel to reel inside the cabinet and a chalkboard inside the cabinet. That <laughs> that means that they're super high tech. But it was also sort of, <laughs> well in, in in like 1982 people were probably very impressed by that <laughs> yeah so, so open the doors like this guy's got a chalkboard in there <laughs> they're, they're pretty serious man this is a serious law firm um but you know i, I think they just kind of give him the um i think the the british uh, accent was sort of the mantle of uh, leadership and you know sort of the sophisticated i'm the sophisticated one in the room that that was kind of the angle on it um how about any anything else from a casting standpoint well i, I would like to talk about paul newman just a little bit more so I, I'm a fan of of Paul Newman, um, but I think I think more specifically of like the older Paul Newman, um, like I think that growing up I was more exposed to his uh, late stage career, right? So I really liked um, Nobody's Fool, uh, but I also love him as you know Fast Eddie Felson, but in The Color of Money, not in The Hustler. Right, because and I've seen that movie several times. I just love him in that movie. I have seen the the Hustler once. I've also seen so like so that's you know like early career um, Newman, and also Cool Hand Luke, which I thought was a great movie. But I've really only seen those movies like once. Right. You only seen the Hustler um, once? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic. But um, but I've seen The Color of Money like several times. Yeah. What are we gonna do to uh, cover our pre nineteen eighty movies? There's so many. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, the, other, the other movie that I would throw out there for Paul Newman, uh, which maybe is a bit of a guilty pleasure, but Slapshot. Are you familiar with Slapshot? So I was going to mention that because I, I really need to watch Slapshot again. I think I've only seen it once when I was a kid. I didn't really think that much of it. I didn't even know really who Paul Newman was at the, at that time. Yeah. But a lot of people say that that's a great movie. And so I, I feel like I, I need to rewatch that. And I also need to rewatch Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, we should just do that as a as a check, please, on this show on this uh, podcast what Slapshot or butch cassidy well actually either one would be good but butch cassidy in particular i mean i i, I love that movie we could do a deep dive on paul newman and of course the sting by the way i love that movie oh it's one of my but, favorite yeah, yeah yeah newman and redford one of the great all-time pairings for sure all right well how about we start going through the movie and we can just uh talk about some of the scenes and maybe highlight some of the things that were interesting to us along the way um i'll start it off so opening sequence i i is to me a great moment of visual exposition. So we meet uh, Frank Galvin, uh, this uh, kind of down on his luck attorney. He is uh, drinking midday and playing a pinball machine and he's mostly silhouetted. And what's great about that scene to me is he's sitting there playing pinball. He has a beer next to him. 
he stops for a minute and picks up his beer and he takes a deep sigh and you see him sort of contemplating to me it's sort of okay well what's going on in my life and then he just pulls the pinball thing and, and keeps playing so i you know i and then the other thing is i noticed there's tinsel hanging in the window of the bar and so the question is is it christmas or is it just some rundown bar that has never taken down their christmas decorations i don't think that's made clear uh but i think it's a great between that and what follows shortly thereafter which is uh you see frank going to a series of funerals and walking up and giving people his card trying to generate business so you very much get the feeling that he is an ambulance chaser you know some kind of low uh low level attorney and uh he's definitely projecting that I, I would say one thing about the funeral sequences is he is introduced at one point by somebody else as a very fine attorney and it's great because the character frank galvin has a look on his face as if he's questioning that statement so even when someone is telling him that he's a really good attorney i think that uh you know frank galvin as a character doesn't believe it himself and so you see a little bit of self-loathing there yeah this is like a guy who just seems like he's got no pride at this point yeah. Marcus, anything about the beginning? No, what really struck me about the movie was all of the scenes, all the sets are just so like fantastically put together and fantastically shot. It just tells the scene and like almost all of them, you see um, the characters in it kind of small in the room and it gives you a full setting of either his office or the bar or whatever it might be. Just the lighting, the way the sets were put together to set the mood for each of the scenes it was really expertly done. Yeah, I wanted to say that um, there are a few notable scenes where um, they're done like, exclusively like wide shot and yeah. and they're very notable and, and they really make an impact. Um, like for the, the, the scene in, well, we, we'll get to this in like, if we talk about like our favorite scenes, but the, the one in his office when he's trying to, to get the settlement back on the table and some of the courtroom scenes that are just shot completely wide shot. So, uh, so, so after Frank Galvin visits the, uh, the, oh, actually, let me, let me say this. There's a great scene after he goes to a couple of these funerals where it cuts to him sitting in a bar and it's how he's drumming up business. And he basically has the obituary page open and he has crossed out the ones that he's already attended. Uh, and you know, so he's going to, he's looking for additional business. I will say at this point, this is where we see that he has a powdered donut that he has taken the time to split and put down in front of him, but he hasn't eaten and he's, he's enjoying it with a shot. So who breaks a donut in half and doesn't eat it? That, that's an open question. I, I thought he was saving it for later. You, you think that's what it was? I don't know. Just uh, just confusing. He broke um, it in half so he can dip it in his whiskey. and then, uh... he, Newman plays an alcoholic in a very authentic way. I mean, like, I this was so believable to me. You know, because like many times when you see alcoholics um, portrayed in, in film or TV, um, they sort of like go through the motions of like showing that how you know, there's bottles all around and he's waking up in the morning and, you know, all disheveled and late night drinking and all of that stuff. But this, this, this particular performance, I was just really moved by it. It it seems like he's just like very sad and has hit rock bottom. Yeah. And he's, and he's, it's uh self-loathing and he self is, he recognizes that about himself and he has all this tension that is running through himself, knowing that he thinks he's a better person and he wants to do better, but he feels like he can't. And yet he can't, and he just continues to be like self-destructive. Yeah. And you know, to me, one of the great scenes in the movie that uh, illustrated that was where uh, he has the shot and he can't pick it up because he has the shakes. Right. And, so, and so he bends down and takes a sip of the whiskey out of the shot glass. So that to me was sort of things are out of his control. Mm-hmm. And he's just trying to get a handle on things. At the yeah. I, thought, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then all the, just the, the, the little touches, like, like the Banaka before going into like a business meeting or the courtroom. Right. You know, eye cause, drops. cause his breaths, right. The eye drops. And, and of course the, uh, the, the eggs, the raw eggs in the beer for the, uh, to, to help with the hangover. Okay, so let's. So he does get back to the office. At this point, he's passed out. Um, the off, and he's he's done a little uh, self destruction in the office physically. So we I love, sorry, I just I love how. I'm sorry, I just love how Jack Warden like he tried to get him up, and then he he, he couldn't do it, so he just like drags him across the room. Yeah, throws him on the couch. I was like, oh yeah. Wow. So you get the sense that uh, Jack Warden has been uh, you know a friend of his for a long time, and he's trying to do what he can but at the same time it, it, you see you get the sense that jack warden is sort of at the end of his rope too so it's kind of this is the and in fact he tells him has as much because he said that he got him a great case and that case has been pending for 18 months 
and it's a week before uh, the trial is supposed to start, or was it two weeks, something like that. Um, and now Paul Newman has to spring into action. In fact, the people that are coming to meet with him about the case are coming that afternoon. And if Jack Warden hadn't come in and woken him up, uh, he probably would have missed it. So, um, so Jack Warden explains that it's a woman who was uh, treated at a hospital, and the result of receiving the anesthetic, she ended up vomiting and aspirating the vomit, which cut off oxygen to her, uh, or the oxygen flow, and then she ended up uh, brain dead. And then so she's laying in a vegetative state. And one of the things that's interesting here is that Jack Warden says that the church is being defended by, they describe uh, Ed Concanon, um, the uh, lawyer, as the prince of fucking darkness. So I thought that was pretty interesting that they say that uh, it's effectively Satan that's defending the Catholic Church. I thought that was kind of like that's an interesting, interesting little highlight there. What follows on pretty quickly after this scene is, uh, so, so Frank Galvin is going to go to the church to ostensibly close the deal and accept the payout. Um, and on his way there, he goes and sees the patient, the woman who's laying in the vegetative state. And he brings a Polaroid with him, and he takes a couple pictures. And as he's sitting there, and he's looking at this woman, and he, you know, he, he took those pictures basically as a way to show the horror of the situation as an attempt effectively to get more money out of the church. Um, because he's, he's planning to refute their first offer and try to negotiate. But as he takes the Polaroids and he puts them down and the Polaroids slowly fade in, it's this fantastic moment where you're watching Newman watch the Polaroids fade in. And in my mind, that was sort of also uh, analogous to his conscience waking up or him reverting to something that he was before he became this down-on-his-luck uh, alcoholic. I thought that was a pretty powerful scene. Yeah, he was very, very moved by what he saw. Yeah, uh, sort of like almost moved out of this stupor that he's been in. Yeah. I was saying earlier, the kind of dossier, like before that scene, the church was talking about, okay, the, telling the bishop, who am I meeting with? And that's when they kind of unravel Galvin's past, saying he was the second in his class at Boston College, he was an editor on the Law Review, he made partner, he was married, and they give him the whole background of his character, which yeah. was pretty highly regarded. And then they kind of have a but then he got divorced and he's only had four cases in three years and he's lost them all. And so kind of giving him that background of, okay, he was this great lawyer. And then like you're seeing him now in this like kind of drunken state is kind of. A, yeah. So they're, they're, they're assessing what they need to do or how much they need to prepare to uh, basically really to figure out how much they, they want to cut the check for is really what it comes down to. And they don't see, they don't seem as a threat. No, I just thought the way they unraveled his character in, in multiple shots, because they do it again with, with his friend Mickey uh, talking to, uh, what's her name, Laura in the bar. And he's telling her about like, okay, what exactly did happen and how is he in this state? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's it's really interesting because you make a lot of assumptions right off the bat. I mean, he's, a, he's an yeah. ambulance chaser. He's a drunk. Um, you know, he's hitting up, um, you know, funeral homes for business. And um, and then you slowly learn like the, you know, how how he got there, and he's actually a really smart guy, smart lawyer, who had some really tough breaks um, in the last ten years of his. Yeah, but even before, like you don't know, like so his tough breaks, he was like disbarred or almost in jail. But you think, okay, he did that initially on his own. He was okay. You don't know that right? What, the jury tampering. Yeah, the jury tampering. You thought like, okay, he's a shady lawyer. Uh, so he was good, but shady. And then they cut slowly unravel like, okay, who is this character? And so, yeah, it's, it's, it sets up, uh, it, it sets up the mystery as to what happened. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Exactly. It makes, it makes you wonder. To contrast with the body heat and that lawyer, just like, okay, this guy's just a, a screw up lawyer versus like with, uh, we're doing all lawyer movies, I suppose, for our homework assignments. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> nothing, nothing but legal-related uh, thrillers, I guess. Can we do Legal Eagles next week? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, to contrast the two lawyers, you, you get a better sense of Frank Galvin's not like a total fuck-up. Whereas in Body Heat, uh, what was his name, Ned? Ed? Ned was... Yeah. Ned Ryerson. Um, <laughs> that's actually my insurance agent <laughs> um you get a sense of like you know okay he was you know ned's just a terrible lawyer whereas galvin you're like okay what is going to be you didn't care about where did ned go to school whereas hearing about galvin he's oh second in his class at boston college that's interesting you know like well yeah and I, and I think actually coming off of the scene where he goes to see the woman in the vegetative state and then he sits because the next scene where he's actually in the judges chambers and he's meeting with the opposing counsel and at that point they're talking about the the offer that's on the table which is two hundred and ten thousand dollars which frank galvin notes very easily splits into three 
So he would get his $70,000 and walk away. Uh, but he does have those Polaroids with him and he pulls out the Polaroids and he says, you know, he, at, at that moment, it's great because you kind of see a shift in the Galvin character. There's a little bit more light in his eyes and he decides this is actually a true travesty of what happened and he wants to fight. So, you know, he kind of, it reinvigorates him a little bit and, uh, he decides, so he, he rejects the payment and then decides he's going to fight it. Um, the, the, the thing I loved most about that particular scene um, you know, he's like sitting in this very opulent bishop's office and sitting in the, the chair that he's sitting in in front of the bishop's desk is sort of like this very ornate uh, wooden chair. It's almost like a throne. And he looks so small in it. And he's like, he's just like clutching yeah. his briefcase in his lap. Uh, it's, it's, you could tell like he's, he has no confidence. He's not a formidable adversary. And he looks very pitiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how they like they shot it. I thought it was just like he does look so small in the, that instance, and just like so like, what am I even? He looks like a little boy almost. Like what am I doing? Like in front of these people, getting, right? He's like in over his head. Like, yeah. How can he win? You know, against this Goliath. Yeah, I guess the other thing we skipped over too is uh, earlier in the film he does duck into his local bar, which is apparently the one that he goes to all the time, and there he sees Charlotte Rampling sitting uh, at the bar, and he approaches her and makes a casual pass. Uh, doesn't go anywhere that time. Uh, but then soon after that, he is back in the bar and she's there again. Uh, and he ends up going home with her. So the two of them start a relationship. And over the course of the movie, you believe that this woman, Laura, is actually working to help him a little bit as they're preparing their case. But we will find out that is not the case down the road. Can, we, can I just make a comment or about that scene, the second scene when he goes back in and she's back at the bar yeah and he he walks over to her. she's like sitting at the end of the bar and he like walks over to her um and starts talking to her um i just love the sound in this movie i mean newman's got this the older newman has this amazing gravelly voice and hearing hearing that and hearing like the squeaking of the floorboards as he walks over to her in the bar it's just amazing it's like very Sort of crystal clear. There's little things that they that they that you hear um, that just really stand out. Like when he's having a glass of Bushmills, you hear like the ice clinking around in the glass. Yeah, it's just really well done. But his voice is just amazing. I wish that he would whisper into my ear. I I would definitely have some ASMR going. ASMR Newman, (laughs) definitely. All right. Yeah, was that the scene where they're eating dinner? He meets her at the bar, and then and then he and then they, he asks her if she's hungry, and then they have dinner at the bar. Yeah. So and that 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 to me that's another pretty important scene about uh, who he is as a character, because she starts talking to him about you know what's his history and why is he doing this, and you see the the light begin to sparkle in his eye again, and he talks about the fact that he believes that uh, the court system is set up to help those who can't. Uh, achieve justice hopefully achieve justice and uh he's pretty passionate about it and it's so it's it's great to see because it it, kind of harkens back to the earlier part of his life when he had some genuine fire and passion and you can see that he really is he wants to help people Um, but of of course that's all sort of gone by the wayside because of his uh, alcoholism yeah i think that might be one of my favorite scenes it's uh one of the top two it's amazingly shot he's like it's so close up on him he just he's sitting there smoking a cigarette and just like he looks like such a movie star in that scene of just like the power of him and stuff. It's just really, really Newman. I thought that was one of his best, uh, best scenes in it. Just brilliantly lit and just sitting there right into the camera and kind of talking about maybe, maybe I can do something right this time. Maybe I can uh, help the weak. Uh, yeah. Court exists to give him a chance at justice. Is that what you're going to do? Maybe I can do something right. One of the most powerful scenes of him as a movie star in the movie, like really like strong. Yeah. So he does. Uh, so again, he rejects the payment and decides he's going to go to court. Uh, he asks Jack Warden uh, to help him prepare. Uh, and then one of the next scenes that cuts to him doing the initial jury selection. And he definitely comes across as being way out of practice. <laughs> so, And he looks a little disheveled. He looks a little confused and um, it certainly doesn't set the stage for him uh, or doesn't give you high confidence that he's going to be just crushing this case. And he admits as, such, as much after the fact when they walk out that uh, he was a little rusty. But 
it's good because it kind of shows you that uh, he's definitely um, he's definitely off his game, and, and uh, he hasn't done this for a long time. Yeah, one of the other scenes um, that I really liked was the uh, when they were showing the lawyer's office, and they had like the, this room of twenty lawyers going over all their strategies and all this stuff, and then it cuts to uh, just uh, Mickey and Frank in the library themselves, just the two of them, and they're like small in the library kind of doing that is like right right it's just that juxtaposition of like oh here's this huge legal team and oh, here's our team yeah yeah the other thing that i thought was good about that scene is uh so the frank galvin character he rattles off uh, multiple precedents in terms of which cases they should research so it, it it does show you that although you know he's been boozed out for a while he still has a pretty sharp mind underneath uh the, the layer of alcohol yeah. uh, and so uh and so it's you know it gives you it's just kind of fun what they do with him because he's simultaneously pathetic and then he has these little moments of high energy or passion or brilliance. And so it, it, it puts him on very uneven footing as a, as a character throughout the movie. I believe they call that a moment of clarity. He has a moment of clarity. They don't do the, the he doesn't clean up. Like he's not, he's still an alcoholic throughout the movie. Like he doesn't stop drinking. It's not like, okay, this one moment. And it's not like I have the tiger plays and he's, he's got this moment. Now he's going to take him on. It's still yeah. No, I, yeah. I kept waiting for that, and it and it never happened, and I yeah. appreciated that because it would not have been realistic. Yeah, it kept it a lot more real. He's still like you know pulling out warm beers from his filing cabinet and and drinking as he's preparing for the case. So I thought it was really yeah. Uh... So let me. The other thing that is important is uh, before he actually goes to uh, receive the settlement offer the first time, he makes contact with a doctor that he is going to be using for his uh, as a witness for the prosecution. And so he meets a doctor who is a, an established and a respected anesthesiologist. Uh, and this doctor is comes across as somebody who's really angry about what happened to this girl. And so he says, yeah, I'm going to be there. I'm going to testify to, you know, uh, on your behalf. What happened was a tragedy. It's horrible. And he actually tells Newman's character, Frank Galvin, that, that the hospital killed her is, is the way that he phrases it. Murdered her. He murdered her. He said and it so was he has, murdered. He, he said it was criminal. Yeah. And so he comes across as having a lot of anger, a lot of passion. And he's, you think he's going to make a, um, you know, a star witness for the prosecution. Uh, but what happens... So basically it's a slam dunk. So you think it's a slam dunk. And in fact, you see Frank Galvin character. He's actually literally jumping in, up and down in the street. He's so excited because he thinks that having this doctor on his side is going to lead to a big payout. So again, at this point, very early in the movie, he's still chasing the money versus chasing the justice. Yeah, this is, that was before they even made the offer. He's like, oh, this is open shut case. I'm going to like, this is going to be easy. Yeah. By the way, didn't uh, when the uh, the bishop and the uh, insurance uh, company representative were talking about this? Um, weren't they saying something like they could, like they would offer up to like six hundred thousand dollars, and um, and then they when Galvin gets to the bishop's office and they have the meeting, they just give him a check for two hundred ten thousand dollars. So they're totally lowballing him from the right. get go. Yeah, and you know, by the way, sorry, one other thing we have to back up on. <laughs> so uh, before the initial trial starts or the jury selection starts, there is a scene where Frank Galvin is in the judges' chambers with opposing counsel, so James Mason. Uh, Mr. Kincannon. And what comes across right from the get-go is that the judge is completely on the side of the defense. So he's he's very strongly associated, uh, or he's, uh, I think, his loyalties are for the church and not for uh, this woman. Because, and I think it, he does have an Irish, a slight Irish accent, so there's probably, you know, they're, they're trying to infer that he has some sort of a built-in relationship. Uh, but it's clear that he is uh, more on the side of the prosecution, or I'm sorry, more on the side of the defense than the prosecution. And I will say that uh, later in the film, that takes a pretty dramatic turn. But Yeah, um, I felt like he, not necessarily he was tied to the church, he just was kind of anti-Galvin. He was like, hey, you're, you're a bum lawyer, you were almost disbarred, and these guys just made you an offer for 210, and you turned it down. Like, I don't even want to see this case in my court, and here I have to do it, try it. And so, like, he was all upset that... uh He's even gonna have to deal with this case at all, and so I think he had that prejudice from the beginning. I well, yeah, I, I think that there was that, but I also think he was very much on the side of the church. They also said someone had said that he's a very pro-defendant um, judge. Right. Yeah, they did. But based on his actions later on, he must have, you know, been on the side of the church. And there's no other explanation. He had decided. He had decided this outcome, even though. 
we all know it was a slam dunk, but he had decided this in, in their favor. Yeah, so it gets to the eve of the trial, uh, and that important doctor, anesthesiologist witness that uh, that Frank Galvin was going to use, he goes to meet with him, and the doctor is suddenly out of town, and he's on a he's on an island in the Caribbean where they don't have phones. That's what he's told. So it's never fully explained, but you get the uh, you kind of assume that either the um, Catholic Church or somebody else paid this guy off, but they never really circle back and close out on you know what it must have taken to turn this guy from somebody who was so hot to prosecute or help the prosecution because he really thought this woman was murdered to all of a sudden going out of town. Unless I miss something, I, d- I just think that uh, that that's left a little bit. Uh, well, I think he says it later on. Then they paid him off. They paid him to get out of town. Right. But I mean, I just, I'm just wondering, I'm like, how much would they have to pay this guy? Because he seemed, how much? he seemed super pissed off, right? I mean, it seemed like he was actually, uh, like lot. he gen- genuinely wanted to. Uh, church has a lot of money. And church does, you're right. Okay. Yeah, one of his quotes earlier, the doctor, I thought was uh, interesting because he made a quote about like, why are you doing this? He's like, oh, it's the right thing. He's like, isn't that why you're doing it? To Galvin. And Galvin's like, oh, yeah, sure. That's why I'm doing this. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, but then it turns around. Yeah. Yeah, to, uh, one thing I want to say about that scene is, um, and this is like about Newman's performance. He, the just watching him as he goes from like the hospital where he's supposed to meet the doctor um, to like trying to track him down and, and going to his his um, his uh, medical office and not finding him there, and then going actually going to his home and and being told that he's uh, out of town uh, in the Bahamas or wherever it was, um, just seeing that the level of anxiety rise uh it just and and then just like sort of like the this look of desperation on his face when he's told that he's like you know he's basically unavailable and, and he's just lost his expert witness yeah is really amazing yeah because that's that's where he get, gets back to the office and uh frank galvin is now frantic about trying to find a way to, to get the original offer back on the table yeah, because he's you know he realizes that he he's gonna lose at this point, and which, uh, and he, which and he I goes, think is is my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, it's it's a great one actually because Newman is jittery as all hell, and he's you know when he's picking up the phone, you, the his voice is shaky and it's all over the place, and you can tell that he completely lost his confidence. So he had a, a you know a small burst of I'm gonna win this. I have this expert witness, and then when the witness goes away, he just basically falls apart. And he's yeah he's it's probably the lowest point in the film, I would say for him as a character. It's, it's just so sad to see him in this, in this spot because he was like, I'm going to take it to trial. Uh, you know, I'm going to win it and I've got everything I need. And like, they just like swept the rug out from under him and now he's got nothing. And now he's like basically begging on the phone without, without trying to sound like he's begging on the phone. But you just hear it in the back of his voice, like he's he's just lost it all, right? And there's no getting it back. And now he's got to go face the family and tell them, you know, oh man, that was tough. Great scene, and it's all shot from like the floor across the room, and the camera doesn't move at all, and you just see him like on the phone, pacing around, and oh my god, it's so good. So then, uh, so then he, so Frank Galvin is looking for a replacement doctor or any kind of a witness that can help uh, testify that the situation went sideways like it did. Uh, and so they end up, I don't know how they end up finding a list of doctors, but they find one that's available and it, it ends up being, uh, a guy named, uh, Dr. Tem- Dr. Thompson played by Joe Seneca. And so Galvin is excited. He, he has an, another expert witness. He goes to the train station to meet him and the doctor shows up and he's black. Uh, and that initially throws Frank Galvin quite a bit. And this to me, I, this, I thought this was really interesting because what happens is there's a whole kind of, you know, 10 minute sequence where you're getting, uh, the reactions of the characters to the fact that this doctor is black and it definitely is, uh, far more important to everybody that, you know, uh, that, or they believe as an African-American, he's not going to be able to, uh, you know, have the same level of or project the same level of um, sort of looking for expertise as some of the other doctors. And in fact, Jack Warden at one point refers to him as a witch doctor. And uh, and uh, and James Mason is Ed Kincannon when they're discussing how to handle this new expert witness. 
uh, one of the things he says is you should treat him like you treat anybody else. <laughs> you know, so try to not acknowledge his blackness. And just the, the level of sort of rampant racism and, and all of that that is, was pretty interesting. I mean, I, I was assuming that I was actually thinking about this when I was watching it. So knowing that Lamette has made so many New York centric movies and then he makes this movie as a Boston film, I really took that as a, a condemnation of Boston racism, but I don't well, know. Well, th- there's a long history of Boston racism. Oh, no, I know. So, yeah. So, so this is, this is no surprise, but yeah, it's like the look on his face. When he turned around and he's like, you're Dr. Thompson? Yeah. And just, his face just fell, just thinking, oh, my God, my my star witness now, my expert witness is, like, going to be seen as completely illegitimate in the, in the eyes of this jury just because of the color of his skin. Oof. Yeah, and then so so Galvin does uh, just does choose to put him on the stand, um, and at that point, this is where so he starts asking him some questions. The uh, and then um, so Ed Kincannon is cross uh, cross examining the doctor, and at this point, for whatever reason, the judge himself <laughs> decides to jump into the uh, to support the defense efforts, and so it, he stands up or he starts yelling at. Frank Galvin, uh, that, uh, you know, or basically he, he asked the witness a direct question as to whether or not, um, because of the time that it took to try and resuscitate the woman after she initially went into cardiac arrest, he asked, the judge actually asked Dr. Thompson directly, is that, was that negligent or not? And the doctor says no. And then so Frank Galvin's kind of taken aback and says, you know, yells at the judge and says, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to try my case for me, I'd prefer that you don't lose it. Um, but, <laughs> But I mean, this to, this to me, it was I I thought this was a super strange choice from from the screenplay or from the movie overall. I don't understand why. I mean, I, I get that you're really trying to show that the judge has bias. I assume that maybe the fact that the doctor was black maybe plays into this as maybe the that was you know some racism that was coming from the judge directly. But I also there's no legal. I can't imagine a situation where legally this is going to hold up anywhere if you have the judge start yelling at the witness. I mean, it seems like that's an automatic mistrial. So I thought that was kind of strange, actually. I say I think they did it so they could have the next scene in the judge's chamber, which is actually I think my favorite in the movie. He wanted to break for lunch, and then uh, Galvin wanted to continue. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. He was like, basically, you know, get the fuck on with it, you know, like because yeah. he said. Do you want to question him now, or should we break for lunch and you can question him tomorrow? He's like, no, I'll, 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 uh, I'll him question now. him now. Yeah. So the judge, I think, was upset because he wasn't able to uh, break for lunch. He wanted some soup, and uh, so he wanted to speed it along. But I thought the next scene was the the strongest in the, or my, one of my favorite in the. Uh, uh, Newman was so strong. Galvin, that's like when he kind of gets he gets his strength behind him. He's like, okay, you know, he's like, God damn it, this is like everything's stacked against me, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm doing the best I can. And he really just comes out strong and really just kind of. He's emphasizing his points. He's banging his hand on the uh, table and just like. I'm going up there. I'm going to try it. I'm going to let the jury decide. You know, they told me about you. Said you're a hard ass. You're a defendant's judge. Well, I don't care. I said to hell with it. To hell with it. They showed some backbone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He stood up to the judge. And um, and it worked. Like the judge kind of backed down and threw him out of his office. But like. Yeah, a, a little bit. To me, what's interesting is I've, I've uh, you know, when I was doing some reading about this movie, it gets mentioned as you know some one of the top courtroom dramas of all time, and I I don't I don't see it that way. I think it's a top Newman performance, sure, but it seems like the entire case uh, is tried in about seven hours, and uh, you know, and uh, the <laughs> tried poorly and mishandled across the board when it comes to uh, at least the uh, judicial conduct. I would say so. No, no, no way does this, no way does this, you know, whatever the end result is, no way does this thing not get appealed and it gets upheld on appeal. And there, there's yeah. a retrial here automatically. Now the whole, like the legal aspects of the, the case are like, I'm no lawyer, obviously, but the, there's like so many times where like no one's objecting to things and there's so much like either leading witnesses or just like badgering witnesses. And just like, none of this would actually happen. It wasn't like a realistic portrayal of law. No, it was very strange. This this case is very uncomplicated and you wouldn't see a case like this in a quote unquote legal drama today. You know, the, the script writers would throw in a lot of different uh, twists and turns and surprises to keep the audience interested. Um, there was, you know, there was a few things um, in the court case where they, where they sort of did that. 
um, but really not that many. So yeah, it wasn't like a legal drama. So no, I mean, in fact, it's a it's a boring legal case. Actually, I mean, it's it's pretty pretty straightforward. Yeah. So then after uh, so after this happens and his you know his new expert witness is basically kind of taken apart and uh, is you know admits on the stand effectively that he thinks the doc- the actions of the doctors were not negligent. Um, then it, it cuts to a scene where it's back in the office with, you know, so Newman and Jack Warden are there and uh, Jack Warden's actually giving uh, Frank Galvin a bit of a massage as uh, <laughs> as Frank Galvin is bent over. And, uh, you know, Jack Warden's trying to tell him, well, you're going to lose this one, but there will be other cases. Um, and this was probably, I think, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And Newman is saying, he's just repeating over and over again, there, there will be no other cases. This is the case. This is the case. And he's just really, you know, digging in and doubling down. And he really wants justice for these people. And so I thought that was a great moment, actually. Thoughts? <laughs> okay, then I'll keep going. Um, so the so the other the other thing that happens. Uh, so uh, so uh, so Frank is pursuing, uh, you know, trying to trying to find whatever lead he can and. Uh, very early in the um, in the movie, he had gone to an ER nurse and tried to get her to testify on behalf of the prosecution, and she wouldn't prosecute or she would not do that. And she calls him an ambulance chaser, basically tells him to get the hell out of there. Um, however, he notes that she's also not willing to testify on behalf of the defense, so he's pretty sure that she's protecting something. Um, what he ends up doing is he ends up going to her house and breaking into her mailbox. And stealing a phone bill. Luckily, that phone bill was delivered either that day or you know the day before if she didn't get her mail. Uh, but he uses that information to track down a phone number in New York, which he then calls, and he ends up finding uh, another nurse who was there, uh, who was the admitting nurse on the night that the woman came in for the procedure. By the and- way, uh, a pretty amazing luck that. That she happened to get her phone bill at the same time that he did. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. It's a, yeah. you know, it's, it's wow, <laughs> one, one in a million or one in thirty-one, I guess. If you're, talking, if you're talking about the days it gets delivered. So, um, by the yeah. way, before we move on, um, I just want to say that so that ER nurse uh, was played by um, her name was uh, Maureen Rooney, and she was played by uh, Julie Bavasso, um, who is in one of my favorite movies, Moonstruck. She played Rita Capomaggi. There you go. You gonna watch that tonight? Yeah. There you go. The, uh, yeah, no, it's also like convenient that this nurse, these two nurse, nurses have been apart for like four years, but like in this, this month, she's, she's calling her. her. Yeah, yeah. She's calling her and making like, oh, her number's on there four times. And it's the only New York number she called. So, yeah. So while that's going on, so, so Frank Galvin decides he's going to fly to New York to try to see if he can convince this ER nurse to come back and testify on his behalf. And, um, while that's happening, so Jack Warden is back in the office with Laura and, he he's looking for some cigarettes and so he just helps himself to her purse he just goes right in her purse and uh what he discovers is uh, a check that has been written to her from ed concannon so the defense attorney and what it what we end up finding out is that she was a mole and that she's been working for the um she's been working for the defense team so she specifically was positioning herself in the bar knowing that frank galvin would approach her um, and I actually looked it up cause I was curious. So she's paid $575. That's the fee that she receives for being a mole, um, adjusted for inflation. That's $1,537. So, um, which, uh, seems like a, you know, seems like an, I don't know, an odd amount to sell your soul for, but, uh, you know, that's what was happening. She also gets, gets herself a knuckle sandwich. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. She does go to New York. Um, at one point before. Doesn't hold up well. <laughs> no, it does not. I was going to say, so uh, so she goes to New York and you get the sense that she's trying to, she's going to come clean about what she's doing in terms of being a mole. But at that point, so uh, Mickey has gotten to uh, Frank Galvin and let him know uh, the fact that she has been working for uh, the defense. And so he goes and finds her in a hotel bar and basically just walks up and slaps her just or, or just kind of punches her actually, just decks her. I think it was, a, I don't think it was an open hand slap. You think he knuckle hit on that one? I, I think it was. Still, though, it's a little little tough to watch, actually, that scene. Uh, yeah. yeah. It doesn't, doesn't hold up. Uh, okay, so then, uh, so luckily, Frank Galvin is able to convince the ER nurse to come back and testify. And so uh, they're back in the courtroom. And as the admitting nurse, she tells a story and says that, uh, that she received 
uh, or when she was interviewing the patient and asked her when the last time she ate was that she says it was only an hour ago. And so the admittance form marks that as one hour. Uh, and then on the stand, what she admits to is being pressured by the doctor to end up changing that one to a nine. And she says that after the fact, after the, after the accident happened and this woman ended up brain dead, that the doctor came to her and said that he had done five deliveries in a row and he was really tired and he did not check the admittance form. Uh, and so, uh, it was, it was a, he was, it was a mistake that he made, but he made her correct it. And she actually shows up with a photocopy of the original document, which she says she made because she wanted to protect herself. Um, and then I'll say, here's another scene where the judge, it just goes off the rails, I think, because the, uh, the defense basically stipulates that you can't, um, that you can't admit a copy of the document. Uh, and then, but they also say that as a rebuttal witness, that all of her testimony should be removed from the record which I don't really understand at all. I mean, again, I'm not a, not a legal scholar, but it seems like you should be allowed to call whatever witness you want. And so the judge basically invalidates her entire testimony. And at that point, while he's instructing the jury to ignore her testimony, he's really yelling at them. <laughs> so I, I don't know what was going on here, but he, the, the judge was having a bad day, I think. The, the judge was a dick. Yeah, He was. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that the... Uh legal theory would hold up uh, this this case is definitely getting overturned by an appeals court oh yeah so then we're we go to the so we go to the the very end of the courtroom uh situation that were the case and uh that's where frank galvin gets up and probably it's probably my favorite overall scene in the movie in fact I'd, i would say that it is because he is giving his summation in terms of um you know kind of he's he's wrapping things up and he gets up and he he still appears to be slightly unsteady. And as he's talking, he is talking to the jury and he's he's letting them know that they have an opportunity to deliver justice. So it kind of wraps back to his earlier uh, when he when he was talking to Laura in the bar and talking about the the availability of the justice system to help people who are not uh, who are who don't have the power to fight for themselves. And he's he's telling us that the jury has the ability to do that. But he says things like. You doubt, you know, uh, we doubt the law and we become weak. And actually what he's doing is he's talking about himself. And so the summation that he's giving on behalf of the case, my read on that was it's basically just a self-expression of who he is and the journey that he's been through in terms of losing his faith in the legal system and then coming back. And and the other thing that's great about this scene is it's uh, the camera is positioned behind the jury box and it's this long, slow pan that's occurring while he's delivering the speech. I think it's just an amazing moment, actually. I think it's a, a super powerful moment for uh, his character. I just think it's great work by Newman, and I think the camera work in that scene is super cool. So I really loved it. Yeah, I totally agree. It was a great, great scene. And like you can see, like when he starts it off, too, he's just totally rattled. The judge just destroyed his whole case. He had this expert witness that was just told to, like, is not valid and has to be uh, no longer considered. And you can see, like, his, he's just trying to get his feet under him, trying to, like, what do I even say at this moment? And he ends up coming out so strong with it. It was, uh, I agree, totally fantastic. I, I think it's also amazing because in the background, you can see Bruce Willis clearly sitting behind him. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, he, he, was, uh, he was an extra in the film. Really? <laughs> swear to God. That's funny because that's, that's not what made that scene so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> it, might, it may not have been... That scene, it might have been like the one right before, but in the courtroom, yeah. Yeah, he's just like sitting back there, hanging out. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll, do. I'll have to, I'll have to show up. you where it is. Cue it up. Yeah, so, the, uh, so, so we get to the end of the case, and the jury comes back, and spoiler alert, they, uh, they find for uh, the plaintiff. So, they, they, so Frank Galvin wins the case, and what they, the jury actually asked the judge, if they're allowed to award more than what the plaintiffs were asking for. So, you know, it's going to be a great payday, but the, the look of relief and, uh, not, 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 it's probably more relief than satisfaction that, that kind of washes over Frank Galvin's character as, uh, the jury is rendering their verdict is another amazing scene. I mean, Paul Newman just in this movie is just fantastic. It's, uh, you know, I, I would rewatch this movie just to watch him. Uh, you know, act some more, honestly. Yeah, I totally agree. Like he was so, he's just so magnetic in the whole film. Like his character, his just 
presence on the screen. He just does a wonderful job with it. He probably should have been nominated for Best Actor. Oh, wait, he was. Probably should have won. Um, yeah, so anyway, so uh, maybe just like general uh, general thoughts. I mean, I, you know, what I would say is I think my overall takeaway is uh, it's a... It's an amazing Paul Newman performance. It is not necessarily, and it's a it's a very it's a very good or good to very good movie. It's a fantastic Paul Newman performance. Um, as a courtroom drama, though, I'm not sure that it's uh, it's going to crack the top ten of you know most compelling courtroom uh, dramas for me personally. Yeah, this this is all about Paul Newman's performance. Yeah. Um, so okay, how about uh, was there a quote or a line of dialogue that and maybe maybe we've already covered it, but is there anything that jumped out to you that you thought was uh, you know something you'd want to highlight? One of the earlier ones from Mickey was uh, he's trying to tell him to like, oh, just take the deal. Why don't you just take the deal? Try to buy it. That's the fucking point, dummy. Let them buy it. No, we let them buy the case. That's why I took it. Now look, you just dropped this. You understand? We'll go up to. Go up to New Hampshire, we'll Mick. kill some fucking Oh, Mick, here. Mick, Mick, you said, no, listen to me. He's like, come on, come on, Frank, take the deal. You know, we'll do this, we'll go up to New Hampshire, and we go kill some fucking deer. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think for me, my, my quote was just that, you know, there will be no other cases, this is the case. Like that, I thought that was just, um, because it just his single-mindedness and uh, just represented the his his opportunity to do the right thing and i thought that was pretty cool very powerful yeah i took that as his like uh kind of like his will to like carry on with like his life to a certain degree like this is it like if i don't win this then what am i even doing like yeah like yeah it was it was it was it was i mean it's a make or break moment it was it was that that's yeah it was you're either gonna that's it the bottom truly falls out forever or you got a chance to start heading back up so um, okay, how about just a few open questions, just uh, some uh, things that were not really answered during the course of the movie? Yeah, my unanswerable question, the uh, 210,000 uh, inflation adjusted is over half a million. Uh, so one, that's a lot of money to just be passing up. When the, um, But the question is, uh, what was the final settlement? Like, what were they, what were they asking for? Because they never actually give the price of what they were initially asking for. And then what was the uh, final jury? Yeah. Well, I think it was, uh, I think Frank had said earlier that you could get like five to six times that much. So I was taking it that they were going for like one, a million, million, 1.5 million, something like that. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. And what was funny though is the family only wanted like $50,000. <laughs> right? She mentioned that, the sister mentioned that very early on. She's like, oh, we just need a endowment for $50,000, is all we're looking for. And then like he turns down 210. So yeah, another, and then another, and then you know that's the the scene where he gets uh, confronted by the the brother-in-law. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you know he's like, "You're all you're all like you're just you know, you're out there for the money. Like you, you know, we don't you don't care about you know the little people and all that." Oof. So uh, I had another question, which was, where were Frank's offices? Were they in Grand Central Station, like in a corner? Because I know really really cool uh office in, in, just in terms of the the view because it's like right under that arch yeah and had, with that really um cool sort of like um arched window was it an arched window yeah he was in boston so i doubt it was in grand central station that's yeah. a good point thank you <laughs> <laughs> good good geographical tip on that one. Um, I, I have i have one question okay um so during the um, during the trial, um, when Dr. was it Towler's, when, when Dr. Towler's sees that they, you know, when they call Caitlin Costello Price to the stand, um, does he actually drop a load into his pants? Because <laughs> <laughs> the expression on his face was classic. <laughs> that was the only classical, like, uh, courtroom drama surprise. Right. The surprise witness. Yeah. Well, I, so I, have, I have one last question then, which for, for me was, uh, why did they stick with Frank Galvin as their attorney after he turned down the two hundred and ten thousand dollars? Because they, they they yell at him, and you know, there's a there's a confrontation in the lobby of the courtroom area. He punches him, and he and he actually punches him, but they yeah. still allow him to proceed with the case. Well, I was wondering if the the defendants are the ones who told them about the deal. Why couldn't he just accepted the deal right then and dropped the case? Like, 
I don't know. That, that's one of the questions I had was like, okay, this whole thing could be over. I mean, I guess it wouldn't be a great movie if they did that, but. Uh, well, you kind of assume that if they were saying that, hey, we made this offer, and then at that point, the they could have said, well, hey, we'll take this offer, and they would have said, yeah. great, you ditch the case, or I, maybe at that point, they just assumed that they had it in the bag, so they were willing to take it. That was before the, the uh, case even started, though. And why would you tell them if you're not going to, like, haha, we made this offer, now you're not going to get anything? Well, I, I think that that's what, yeah, I, I, that's what I'm wondering is like, why tell them if you're not trying to generate some interest for them to get something uh, or, or take the payout as opposed to go to trial? So. I think David Mamet needed to tighten that part up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think we're down to just um, anything else in terms of, you know, additional research or uh, any background you did or anything else you just want to talk about. I, I'll say one thing for me, I, I sort of assume that um, Sidney Lumet had had a couple of Oscars over the course of his career. And uh, that was not the case. So he, um, at least from a directing standpoint, so in 2005, he was awarded an honorary Academy Award uh, that was presented by Al Pacino, which makes sense if you think about Serpico and um, Dog Day Afternoon. But otherwise, uh, you know, kind of got the short end of the stick when it comes to uh, Academy Awards over the course of his career. Like a super impressive career too, if you look at those movies. Yeah, over five. I think uh, just additional commentary. Um, Lindsey Krauss was um, really good. Um, I, I don't know how familiar you guys with, are with her. I, I know her mainly from House of Games, which was written by, and I think directed by as well, David Mamet. And she was actually married to David Mamet at the time of this movie. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And didn't, okay. didn't you say that you had some casting uh, information, like a couple people that were... Considered for other parts. Yeah, well, well, I don't know about other parts, but certainly for the part of Frank Galvin, um, actors who were strongly considered were uh, Roy Scheider, uh, William Holden, Frank Sinatra, Cary Grant, and Dustin Hoffman. I think Roy Scheider initially was like sort of the favorite, um, and, but then the 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 script went through some like script bingo where it was. I think Arthur Hiller was the original slated director and he didn't like the mammoth screenplay and so he hired like another um another writer and so you got like a few different alternate screenplays and then uh i think he didn't like it and then they it got picked up by robert redford and redford didn't like him and so redford had some other guy um write a screenplay and then he didn't like that one and so then finally, like, he gave up on it and Sidney Lumet was assigned uh, or was hired to, to do the movie. And he said, just give me all the screenplays. I'm going to look at th them all. And and he picked the David Mamet. So the original screenplay is the one that got picked because oh, it was like because it was grittier. And at that point, that's when they hired Paul Newman. I think it would have been actually a fascinating Roy Scheider performance or the potential for one. I think that would have been really interesting. Scheider would have been really cool. I think William Holden would have been cool. Uh, Frank Sinatra would also be pretty interesting. I, I don't care about Dustin Hoffman. Okay, well, I think uh, anything else you guys want to throw out there? Yeah, I just thought like um, the whole thing, I can see like it was, it could be a, like a Broadway play or something like that. The whole thing could be shot. As interesting, a, interesting, since it was written by a playwright. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was say that, yeah, it definitely has that feel to it. Um, I, again, I really did love all the scenes. I thought the way it was lit, the way the, the sets were constructed, like all that stuff just gave a great kind of the old school warm tones, like the leather chairs, the desks, like all of it had a very, it just had a great feel to the whole movie. Uh, and it was like during winter and it's all cold outside and then it's like warm inside. That had a great like juxtaposition of that stuff too. That was overall wonderful. I, I don't know why Bill Simmons has this as his number one Boston movie because... I, you tell me. I don't really remember seeing that much of Boston in the nah, movie. Not at and all. I and I read that you know, yeah, they did some exterior shots in Boston, but they mostly filmed it on a soundstage in New York. Yeah, I, I surprised that it is his. His. I mean, it's a great movie, but I, I'm surprised that it's a. I'm gonna have to call him and and yeah. talk to him about this. Have some words. Okay. Well, I think we're down to the last uh, you know recommendation. So. Do you recommend this for people or not? I definitely would recommend it. It's a great movie, quite enjoyable. Uh, Paul Newman's performance is superb and 
definitely it was a great pick good choice for us colin um yeah i definitely recommend it um only to people who like dramas and would appreciate it which is pretty much everyone i know except with a few exceptions um it's it you know i'd, I'd probably just caveat that by saying hey this is all about this amazing performance by paul newman you know don't think you're going to get like this amazing like legal thriller because it's not that i would say the same thing for me I, I think it's for me it would be a strong recommendation for somebody that wants to see uh, paul newman just you know crushing it when it comes to the performance I, I was trying to think about this what what's a better paul newman performance in this movie in your mind um i think about that it's hard to say because like the sting like his characters like in the sting and in uh even butch cassidy like i like his characters better than this character but like performance wise i don't know if they're better yeah i mean it's interesting cause butch- I, I don't think there is one yeah the, the, this one is just so nuanced that the, the hustler is really good though you have to see the hustler. well yeah yeah, yeah. Like his... i mean like i said like uh, the color of money is probably the the one i'd say is closest yeah um but you know he carries this film yeah, and I, I, you know, because thinking about The Sting or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, movies that I love, um, The Sting is definitely, uh, it's more of a, you know, there's that kind of that uh, that fun hokiness that's along for the yeah, ride. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so it's a little bit a little bit lighter. Um, Butch Cassidy, too. I mean, you have all the, I mean, obviously there's the, the gunfights and all that, but riding the bike and, you know, playing the more, or having the more playful moments. Uh, this to me is just, and I, again, I, I think what I loved about this performance is, you got to see him bounce. It was almost like a sine wave between I'm in, I'm in real trouble, I'm nobody, to I'm inspired, I'm going to fight, to holy shit, I'm panicking and things are falling apart, and then no, I'm back on it. And so watching him just ride that wave back and forth as a character is what, to me, made it so compelling. And I, I think it's a pretty amazing performance, actually. Uh, yeah, I agree. Totally. By the way, you know what I realized I forgot to mention is the very last scene of the movie, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but he's drinking coffee. Oh, is he? Yeah. Did you guys pick yeah. up on that? So okay, I, I sort exactly. of assumed that maybe he was trying to, you know, not go for the uh, lukewarm Budweiser's in his filing cabinet, but actually, uh, you know, maybe try to get on the straight and narrow. All right. So I think that brings uh, the 1982 homework assignment, the verdict, to an end. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next time on The Real DMC 